ladies have these parties around the UK and they have the agent that invites all their friends to a party and they try to sell all of this lingerie and sex aids, all these sexy things. I was on duty in uniform as a young officer and essentially I was sent to an address of what I was told over the radio was a report of a burglary. So I turned up at this address, as you can imagine, in full uniform as a younger looking guy. <laughs> and this woman opened the door and there's about 50 women that are all intoxicated, all drunk at a sex party. And they thought I was a stripper. That's what I thought. <laughs> so they were trying to drag me, drag me into this Bang. address to rip off my clothes. And I was trying to actually explain, no, I am a police officer. I am not the stripper. I've come to take <laughs> a report of a burglary. <laughs> Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terrence Toe. Hi, Terrence here, and welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. On today's episode, we're interviewing Jonathan Davison, who is the founder and managing director of a company called Forensic Interview Solutions, and also an ex-detective with 12 years experience with the Manchester Police in the UK. Jonathan shared some great information with us about how we can use the right questions to improve our decision-making in business and actually generally in our lives. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage Project. Jonathan, again, thank you. And today's podcast is about giving our listeners unfair advantage in comparison to the ones who are not going to listen to our podcast. <laughs> and this unfair advantage comes, obviously, to business owners. It's about tips and traps you can share with them, your journey into business, how, where did it all start and how did you come to such a great success. First, tell me about, well, not me, but our listeners, about yourself. What happened to you? What happened to me? Why is it like you packing up and going to the US? <laughs> well... I'll put it in the context of a story, then people can understand. That story is good. Where I came from, as you probably can tell by my accent, I'm not Australian, even though I've got a croaky voice today with a bit of man flu. Unless you put in it on. <laughs> it could be. It could be my radio voice. Yeah. Very convincing. But essentially, in a previous life, I was a detective in the police in the UK, in Greater Manchester. And my specialism was what you're doing now is in interviewing people. So interviewing witnesses, victims and suspects. Are you suspect? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes, not all the time. I'm suspecting you're very successful. Well, if you ask my wife, Sarah, who you know, yeah. I don't celebrate the successes too much. It's a bit like my sporting career. Once you've achieved something, you just move on to the next venture or the next project. To give you a context, like I said, I was a detective in the police. My specialism was also my curse because I didn't have a life outside of work. Everything was interviewing murderers, rapists, terrorists, all the nice people that you wouldn't want to speak to. It's a blossom of humanity, yeah. Yeah, but don't get me wrong, not all of them were actually involved in the commission of any crime. They may have been suspected of that, and that was the thing that I actually enjoyed doing, was actually speaking to people and finding out whether they were involved, whether they weren't involved, or what story they could actually tell me, but similar to what we're doing now. And again, as we spoke before, not interrogating them, as going back to the old... I use the word interrogating, and you stopped me straight away. I know. Because you do not interrogate. Well... Well, I do, I'm Russian. Well, 
I'm not going to say that. Just say the word allegedly, and then that means it's alleged. It's not actually fact. Allegedly. Yeah, if you're ever being recorded. But essentially, I, after doing that for a number of years, I realized I didn't have a life. So I looked at getting a lifestyle balance. And that's when I emigrated to New Zealand in 2006. And I was looking to have some time out, travel the country, also come to Australia. And then at that time, the police in Australia and New Zealand started to recruit British cops. Why so is that? It was a skill shortage. So oh, they realized, I thought some fashion statement. No, no fashion statements. It was just a case at that time they were looking at recruiting skilled police officers. So before I knew it, I'd swapped Manchester where I was in Special Branch, which is a flash word now for counterintelligence unit. So mm-hmm. dealing with terrorists in the UK and I swapped that for Auckland crime squad where I swapped to became a detective there mm-hmm. I was there for a year and things happened for a reason I think it's the same probably some of your listeners I bought a property I couldn't afford because I couldn't access my UK pension had to go back to the UK then was asked to become a trainer so I was training new recruits in the police right through to specialists in interviewing we also were training external agencies as well government agencies as well as private organizations as well that would pay the police to be trained again the realization of when you leave Auckland and New Zealand and go back to Manchester it rains a lot you never see the sun and you suddenly realize what the hell am I doing back in Manchester in the UK rather than being in Auckland by the water so uh, after a year and a half back in the UK I came back to New Zealand for the offer of a job that didn't materialize so the start of the company really was it wasn't by design I found out later this manager that was going to employ me saw me as a threat and I was back in the country unemployed in the apartment I couldn't afford and essentially looking for a job nobody would give me a job and I knew that the Australian police forces and New Zealand police force had adopted the methodology I was a specialist in so 10 years ago I thought well nobody's going to give me a job get somebody to give me a job I'll set up a company I'll start training investigators because I know this will be similar to the UK and 10 years later I'm now heading towards uh, moving the company, well, still keeping the company here down under, but also setting up a company in America with a demand for our services. So it's been a fantastic ride because setting off training on a small scale in New Zealand, we now have the likes of the United Nations, FBI, Australian Federal Police, Border Force as part of our clients, as well as in the private sector, the likes of Walmart retailers, banks, HSBC, insurance companies like IAG. And we train both investigators, auditors, uh, financial advisors, anybody that has to gather information from people, we'll train them practically. So uh, it's a It's a great journey, and now we actually, you know, employ people and contract people to deliver our services all over the world. So from desperation to thriving and uh, training entire U.S. systems, tell me why U.S., what's happened there? What happened uh, over, and this is quite ironic, one of the, the models of training within the framework, which is called PEACE, which is an acronym for Planning and Preparation, Engage and Explain, Account, Clarification, challenge, closure, evaluation is a framework of interviewing because even now you would have done some planning before this interview. We're having an engagement now, finding out about me. Now we're gathering more information that you may want to clarify like you're doing now about why why America. Also, you may challenge on inconsistencies. We'll have a closure to this interview. And then afterwards, we'll think about, well, how well did we do the interview? What could we have done better? The evaluation. 
under that framework is, well, it's an American uh, model called cognitive interviewing, which was the cornerstone of, I suppose, when this was introduced in the UK was because of false confessions and miscarriages of justice. And we're going right back to the 70s and 80s. And any listeners will remember Birmingham bombings, the Guildford bombings, IRA suspects were, well, basically tortured, forced to sign confessions. And this was the inception of the model that I was a specialist in, you know, an ethical way of interviewing people based on scientific research. And that is populated around the Commonwealth as best practice. Now, it's nice to say that we are ahead of the game. And in America, they have a massive issue around false confessions. Anybody that's watched Making a Murderer on Netflix, True Confessions, you know, serials like that are actually getting an insight to, you know, how as we'll talk about, interrogations are conducted over there. They're they're looking to obtain confessions rather than trying to establish the truth. That's led to, well, certainly with groups like the Innocence Project over there, 350 people now have been exonerated in the States for crimes they were convicted on, but they didn't actually commit. So you're talking about people that were convicted for murders, rapes, robberies. They may have confessed to those crimes, but now an advancement of DNA, but also revisiting those cases, people are being exonerated. And from state to state in in America, people are getting paid out extensively in terms of uh, settlements. We're talking millions of dollars. Texas, for example, over the last 19 years have paid out over $100 million in compensation to people. And a lot of the origins of those issues have come from interviewing. So what really opened my eyes up uh, a couple of years ago, just going to present at a conference there, nobody knew about this technique, which is a national standard now in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, and now Canada. Nobody knew about this technique or even that cognitive interviewing devised by American psychologists, so an American technique, nobody knew about it. So people over in the States have been looking for providers who have done some early research, and that's where we've come into the equation. And for the last couple of years, I've been going over training police departments, investigators in the private sector. And to an extent now, that has really been a bit of a crusade for myself to go. There is a need for this methodology to be brought to the States. Nobody else has done it. And I applied for what's called a national interest waiver, which is quite ironic in that I was just a detective, nobody, nothing special. But we applied for a national interest waiver, which is basically saying in the national interest of America, if we bring this methodology to that country, we'll be able to train law enforcement agencies to improve in how they conduct interviews, but also employ people over there, give them jobs. And hopefully, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in prison for one day for something that you didn't actually, a crime you didn't actually commit, never mind 20 or 30 years. So that's sort of the, I suppose, the moral ground of why we're going, but also the opportunity from a business perspective is there's nobody else providing that training over there. We are the first and it's leading to the likes of some of the agencies we mentioned before wanting training. So that's the rationale, the reason behind going. So your journey fascinates me because from complete despair situation when you couldn't even afford apartment, never mind a mansion, coming to basically going through a few years of constant putting it, okay, I don't have a job, I will create a job myself. And then uh, from job, just being a self-employed, you start thinking about being more than self-employed, being business. It means working with people, leveraging of their skill and training them. You coming now to the point in your business development when you're going to 
Can I use the word spruik? <laughs> It's across entire legal system, business system as well in America. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, it's certainly a journey and it wasn't by design, but... You I, just fell into it, did you? Well, I think, again, I'm a believer things happen for a reason. So whether it's, you know, moving from the UK to New Zealand, where I met my wife, moving to Australia as well, to now moving to the States, it's, it's a journey and I think things happen for a reason. But the interesting thing is that I'll make a lot when, I, when we train people, and this is my passion in a way, is I enjoy training people and seeing the development and how they progress or, or giving them some things that will actually improve what they do and how they do it. We had some just amazing feedback from an FBI special agent who, again, this is the first training he had practically. And it's a bit like if we're talking football in Australia or, you know, my background was in soccer. You know, if you look at the training that I had when I was a professional playing soccer and, and turning up on a match day, trying to be match fit, what you see in a business sense or in a government sense, people aren't actually trained practically to be able to do the job. It's expected that they can communicate so they can actually interview people. And it's probably the crossover to business as well in the private sector is that, you know, we're training people practical skills. Now I'm older. I'm learning to play golf. So I'm playing, you know, Matt Bolton, who's down at Rosebud, you know, maybe $50 a time to video me and give me coaching to how to hit a golf ball that doesn't move. And it's the hardest thing in the world. But if I didn't do that, I wouldn't improve. And it's exactly the same in the training that we deliver people. It's actually giving them a practical exposure of match practice to then put that into practice in the real world. And it's probably how I've approached my business as well in that, you know, I'll approach or when I set up the company, I approach it very much as I would do an investigation within the police. And it's something that, you know, I think I've learned that has worked well for me over a decade now is that it's an old adage of, we call it an investigative mindset that we train people. But again, it's a, about assuming nothing, believing nothing and checking everything. So if you're thinking about your target market, how you set up your company, how you speak to people, it's having that mindset that's you know suited me well when I'm not making assumptions about the people I need to speak to, what I need to do, how I need to do my business plans, marketing, things like that. You know, it's it's crossing every T, dotting every I, and it and it's. I like a quote when we're training in my training courses, and it's a golfing quote, but I like it because it's a sporting quote. And uh, Gary Player said something to the effect he held a ball out of a bunker and there was a spectator who called him a, a lucky so-and-so and he just turned around to the spectator and went, you know what, the more I practice, the luckier I become. <laughs> and anybody, I think, outside of, you know, whether it's sporting context, work context, anything in life, it's come around not by luck. Yeah, things happen for a reason, but it's hard work you get out of things what you put into it. So certainly whether it's something that I saw probably early in my life in my sporting career where I probably found alcohol in women when I got to about a teenager, I didn't apply myself in what I should have done in terms of the talent that I had. Now I am and, you know, the rewards come in uh, out of the hard work, which is quite interesting when you realise that, you know, I'm probably working harder now as a business owner than I ever did as a detective, even though I might be working 20-hour days, 18-hour days every other day. I'm working harder now at a business than I am because you don't switch off. 
Take me back to your detective uh, time. Basically, I want to build up a bit of uh, an avatar or profile of a person who is a de- detective. What it's like to be a UK cop? Use, use colorful <laughs> language as well. Well, it, it, just it's... let us feel it. If I'm going back to when I was 20 years of age, I finished my sporting career, went to Newcastle University or Polytechnic that turned into a university, and I was studying sports studies, so my passion is sport. And I was starting to think, well, what am I going to do for a career? I don't want to be stuck behind a desk. I certainly don't want to have a boring job. What are the job options I could look at which are going to be exciting? So at that time, I used to like all the cop shows, the detective shows, The ironic thing was at the time, one of my favorite shows was Miami Vice. So I was seeing Don Johnson with his stubble and his Ferrari and his Armani suits and thinking, yeah, that's just going to be fantastic. That's going to be the life of me. And then I realized very quickly when I started in Salford in Manchester as a detective that I didn't get a Ferrari. I got a Holden Astra that was a diesel and I wore a uniform. Could be worse, could be a bike. Yeah, well, it's we not even motor. Not even motor. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's kind of missing. And I again, I sound old when I say this because I used to hear people say this. I started off for two years walking, walking the beat, a bobby on the beat. So that's how I got to meet people, speak to people, get to to know people from every different walk of life. And that's you know, you were community policing. And now you don't see that because the pressure on police officers in this day and age is all about going from one job to the next. There are not enough staff and you don't have that ability to do that. So that's, I mean, it was sexy with the vision to join the police. It certainly didn't turn out that way when you joined it. But what I did enjoy was, you know, the people I work with and, you know, that you can't be if you know that you have... You know, done a very good job and a, a court of law has seen that, you know, you've got the right person and they've been convicted of a crime. It's not a bad feeling at the end of the day when you know that you've contributed towards that to stop that person doing anything, you know, bad to other people. I want to bring a bit more experience for listeners. Can you just put yourself <laughs> in the most horrific moment of your life when you were a cop and when you felt <laughs> felt extremely vulnerable, hopeless, yet had to do something? Well, this is, I'll put this in context because it's actually not what you may think of because I have been shot uh, at. How do you know I what have, I think of? <laughs> well, <laughs> you are my accountant, so... Oh, um, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, we, we have met before, we have talked before, but my most horrific experience, as I say, I have been in some hairy situations in Manchester in the UK where, you know, I've been attacked with people with had knives, I've been shot at, but the most horrific experience was actually when I was... What in, is your wound? Um, Have you got the scar? No, well, I used to actually... How disappointing. Hu- Humour used to be probably, or or this, I'm pointing at my mouth for those who can't see us, is that probably your most valuable commodity is how you speak to people, not how big or strong you are. So as you probably can tell, that mm. I'm older now, so I've got grey hair and wrinkles, but when I was younger, I wasn't a bad-looking guy. So oh, used- God, you're fishing <laughs> now, aren't you? You're yeah. a good-looking bloke. So what do you want well, me to say? This, this is lining up the story okay, because sorry. the most horrific keep experience, and I don't know, what would you call an Ann Summers party over here? A, a what? An Ann so- Summers. So when all the ladies get together and actually have sort of a sex party. Oh. Ladies. Uh, I've got no idea. That would be fair. Well, in the UK, they have Ann Summers. It's, it's a business owner that Ann started Summers. off from nothing. Tell That's us one more. Of the big, it's a business idea. A, Someone um, might pick it up. 
Well, it's a bit like, you know, where you can go and he buying lingerie, sex aid. She set up a business and it basically just snowballed. We but, could hands party. But it's but just have, the girls before they get married. They have this. I know. No, I think there is party. something similar to that. Right. I don't know. Re- oh, don't really know what I, it's called. I'm so not into industry, but please <laughs> well, tell me more. Well, I'll tell At you more can, because yeah. it, it'll, it, it'll probably, if I what can correct, correct the are. picture <laughs> in the ladies have these parties around the uk and they have the agent that invites all their friends to a party and they try to sell all of this lingerie and sex aids all these sexy things i was on duty in uniform as a young officer and essentially i was sent to an address of what i was told over the radio was a report of a burglary so i turned up at this address as you can imagine in full uniform as a younger looking guy <laughs> and this woman opened the door And there's about 50 women that were all intoxicated, all drunk at a sex party, and they thought I was a stripper. That's what I thought. So they were trying to drag me, drag me into this address to rip off my clothes. And I was trying to actually explain, no, I am a police officer. I am not the stripper. I've come to take were, a report of a burglary. Were you insane? Why did you complain? What's what's wrong with you? Well, I actually, it was probably the most money I'd earned in an hour. So, no, allegedly, I say allegedly. But that was the most harrowing experience I ever had as a police officer. It wasn't what you would think. It was turning up to an address. I of, wouldn't have any uh, idea about that kind of experience. Well, I'm sure you've been to one of those parties potentially <laughs> in your time, whether it's allegedly. in Russia or here. <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> yes, uh, allegedly. Uh, maybe as a cleaner, but not <laughs> as a cleaner. Yeah. Tell extreme- me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm extremely shy person. I'm just my exterior right. is all about. I got married too early. That's right. my problem. Is I, I guess what was harrowing about the experience mm. is is what I'm interested in. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's trying to actually explain to to a group of ladies that have obviously drunk a lot and thinking that you are the turn, you are the stripper, when yeah. actually you are a real cop. Yeah. You're on duty. And now I've come to take a report. And you're about to be arrested if you don't <laughs> yeah, stop. Yeah. <laughs> But then all the jokes come out because in those days you did have a truncheon. So you had a wooden truncheon. So you can imagine all the jokes and the innuendos that came out when you turn up to this house. Um, so yeah, that was my most horrific experience. It, it, it still traumatizes me to this day. I have oh, to say. Come on, that's, yeah. that, I think or, that's your glory. Or should glory I say, then. allegedly quite enjoyed it. Now, so, so when who, I'm older, who fired the gun at you? That was a guy. Actually, it was on Christmas Day. So it wasn't at the same party? Um, no, it wasn't at the same party. This was a completely different party. So this was a guy in a high-rise apartment, uh, intoxicated with with drink and drugs and suicidal. And when we turned up to the address, he was locked behind the door, threatening to throw himself out of the window. See, we're there to protect his life and anybody else's life. So um, that was quite harrowing because he suddenly produced a rifle out of the Well, you have letter envelope sort of post boxes, so he just pushed this butt of this rifle and started to be fire at us. There was two t- t- police officers there at the time, so yeah, that was something that you wouldn't want to wish on anybody to experience. Mm. It's it's become quite serious. And what I want to know from this thing, so you realize, Jonathan, that you do have unique set of skills, which probably you can something you can do better than anybody else. And there is a big gap because a lot of people sit there, work uh, at a, on a, their everyday job, not as exciting as yours, obviously, but they just think, well, hang on a second, I'm pretty good at it. 
I just won't go into business for myself. When did you realize that your set of skills would uh, create you something later on you can create a business? When, when did you realize it could be a base for something more serious than just being an employee? I thought I thought about it. I just didn't have, and I see it now with people that I know as friends or associates or people thinking the same things. And like I said, it wasn't by design. I, I was forced in a position where the motivator was, I have a mortgage to pay and I have food to put on the table. And that led me probably before that. I didn't have the confidence to do it. And I speak to a lot of people that, you know, realistically, if you have a family, you have a mortgage, you have bills to pay, the security of a job is what keeps people in a job. But I, I kind of was forced into the position. And now when I do speak to people, I know Lance is coming on your conference. Yes. And um, he's going to be in the studio. And he's going to be in the studio as well. And we were having a coffee a few years ago when he was setting up his company and a few of the people that I know with similar backgrounds to really sort of, you have that self-doubt. And the analogy is really, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? The worst thing that happens is that, you know, the business isn't going to take off, but at least you've tried. And that's the biggest leap of faith when I'm speaking to people, even not with similar backgrounds to myself, is the confidence to take that risk to set up a company. And again, I'm glad I did. And I was in forced into the position because when I'm a lot older, hopefully, and I'm seeing my family grow up, that I can look back and go, well, I actually did it. I actually, you know, set up a company. It was fairly successful. And, um, you know, it's not, It's not about the money for me. My wife will tell me differently because <laughs> well, she's a client of yours as well and has yeah. just set up her own company. I'm doing it because I actually, I suppose, if anybody wants to watch the 15-minute TED Talk, it's Simon Sinek's. It's not what you do, it's why you do it. And people buy into why you do something. So I think that's why we're getting the runs on the board, certainly with America and other countries, because we're training things in the right way it's you know the reason behind interviewing is trying to find certainly in law enforcement is trying to establish the truth it's not about getting confessions from people it's about finding out what actually happened and and convicting the right people if they've committed crimes i think there's there's actually you know this interview has actually been really dense there's a, there's a lot here that i yeah. kind of love to unpack and i don't think we're ever going to get enough yeah, time sure. to do that oh we will just uh, uh, keep well, him here until, we'll just we keep him until we're finished yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's because he's, going, <laughs> kidnapping. he's yeah. going to us we can't have yeah this, we can't uh, let him go without this. miss this opportunity but the one thing i wonder is is the from what you've learned out of that experience of you know probably being forced into a position where you where you just had to do something maybe what what advice would you give to somebody who's just thinking about it maybe they're not maybe they don't have as much motivation as you did and they're not mm. forced into that position but they probably you know they're in a position where they could do something or maybe they should do something what advice can you give someone like that Well, what was what was great in terms of, and I'm thinking back to New Zealand, but also even now, I'm learning every day. And the relationships you have with people, whether it be your friends, that would be my accountant who sat next to me, business advisor, is that you actually speak to people who have either been through what you're thinking about doing and constantly get advice. I mean, at the end of the day, ultimately, you've got to make the decision about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Hmm. And... Again, it's a bit like, and I'll make the sporting analogy, I'm paying somebody I'm speaking to to train me to how to play golf. 
I when I set up the company uh, in New Zealand, there was, and again, you'll probably be able to help me on this locally. There was a, a government-funded scheme where you could get training and you could have a business mentor. Mm-hmm. So I engaged them immediately and thought, well, why wouldn't you have a mentor? Somebody you could speak to who'd not met you before, and I could talk to them about my ideas, my approaches as a sounding board. I mean, obviously now I'm doing that with Nadia and her team and people I work with who have got certain positions within the company. And we'll speak about our approaches to whether it's a certain country, an organization, whether it's government, public, or whether it's private. And we'll talk through and plan our approaches. So the advice I'd give is exactly that. Speak to people. Speak to people that have been through, whether it's somebody who is a business coach, whether it is an accountant firm, whether it is a friend that has been through something. It doesn't have to be the same organization. What's interesting is that I've met a lot of people now since setting up the company who do something completely irrelevant to what we do as a company, but we still go through the same steps of setting up a company. How do you do that? Getting advice around tax, about marketing, about how to structure your business, how you go about meeting potential clients, how you promote what you do. Yeah, because the process is is very relevant, right? That The process is similar. And part of actually one thing that we do is we look at what works in one industry may not be utilized in another industry at all. So you can kind of, you can transfer that directly over into another industry and have some instant success. And let me, let me give you a really funny story. When I first set up the company in New Zealand, I thought, let's keep it simple. I'm a great believer in, in keeping things simple. And, you know, I'll use a football quote where a manager went easy game, complicated by people. (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and I hate to do that because I'm a Manchester United fan and that was a Liverpool manager who they're in the European Cup this weekend so I, I, I'm not going to talk about that anymore <laughs> but I like that quote because people overcomplicate things I mm. see that when we're trying to train people they'll put barriers in their way that don't exist mm. and if you keep things simple you know that's that's going to resonate with a lot of people about their approach to business or you you know the, the story i was going to give I, I called the company interview skills when i first set up let's keep it really simple everybody contacted me going for job interviews and i was like no that's not what we do we don't train people going for job interviews or train well actually we can train that and we can train people doing interviews that would be so, another company we have to set up for that. Well, Different what, income what, stream. What actually happened for the first probably six months of setting up the company was because I'm a qualified trainer, I thought, okay, well, I'm aware of all the different types of job interviews that are conducted, whether it's a behavioral interview or whether it's informal conversation. Well, you could apply piece, the framework. So going back to your mm. point exactly, mm. was, well, do you plan and prepare for an interview? Yes, you do. Mm. Do you have an engagement or an explain phase when you meet that person who's your interviewer, Mm. i.e. your elevator pitch? Or usually the question that's asked is, tell me about yourself. Well, can you plan and rehearse that? Mm. Of course you can. If you know what the job description is for that role, can you prepare every possible question that could be asked? Can you prepare an answer for it? Yes, you can. So for the first six months of setting up a company, I was doing something completely irrelevant to what I thought about was what my business was doing, but, you know, needs most, I needed money. Even for six months, I was doing one-on-one coaching sessions with people going for jobs. And, you know, thankfully, a high percentage of the people we trained, you know, got the jobs. But Mm. really, probably a lot of it was going back to what we talked about was just the confidence. 
Yeah, we gave them a bit of a platform or a structure to plan for this interview, but you can't beat somebody giving you a bit of confidence. And that's the good thing about, you know, probably your business or, or Nadia's business or even mine is that when you're practically training somebody or coaching them, mm-hmm. it's giving them that confidence to probably do what they actually probably thought they were going to do, but to reinforce it or actually give them that path ahead that they actually follow it. And even if where they end up is not where they started out or what they thought, you know, what mm-hmm. they thought it was going to look like. I think yeah. some people get the paralysis by analysis, I think, as mm-hmm. one of Nadia's favourite sayings, just because they get too caught up in, oh, it's got to be perfect or, you know, this is how it has to look. You, and when the reality is you just, just got to start somewhere. You came back to the peace framework. Yeah. And I'd kind of, I'd like to get into that a little bit more yeah, if that's sure. okay and sure. really kind of unpack it a little bit. And I'm interested in, so probably two questions, you know, what else does the PEACE framework apply to really well in Mm. terms of, you know, aside from just interviewing or interrogations? And then as a side question to that, are are there any situations where it doesn't work or it doesn't apply? I think the good thing about it, and Nadia was asking me before, um, well, it's a framework. It's, it was called the Peace Model. It was introduced in the 90s in the UK. And, you know, a Home Office Commission involving psychologists or academics, lawyers, police chiefs, got their heads together and came up with this framework. I think the nice thing about it is that, you know, you've heard probably the phrase, one size doesn't fit all. Mm-hmm. Now, underneath that framework, you've got cognitive interviewing, enhanced cognitive interviewing, free recall, and conversation management. Now... You've got four different models of interviewing. They all follow that sequence of planning and preparation through to evaluation. And really, those models are designed to, you know, when you're interacting with somebody, whether they're going to be cooperative or uncooperative. So you could use, they're not exclusive, you could use all of those models in one interview of anybody. uh, Or you could just use one of them. Uh, Cognitive interviewing is based on social dynamics, how we communicate, how the memory works, because in its origins, you are interviewing somebody about a past event or if they've witnessed a crime or they're a victim to a crime, you're trying to activate their memory of it to get information about what happened, how it happened, who was involved, why it happened. Whereas more of conversation management is, well, and that's really come into its fold with the people we train within the private sector. So whether it's insurance companies, banks, where time is a premium, it's certainly not interrogation. Interrogation's confession-based approach, investigative interviewing, well, I want to gather information and it's got to be quality and quantity of information. So when you see, and I know it was interesting, the development of how things just don't stay still and nothing is perfect of how the company looked 10 years ago and what the website looked like to what it looks like now, you know, it's completely, the Americans are me explaining this catchphrase about, or this frame, chalk and cheese, completely different ends of of the spectrum of what it looked like when it started out and it's still developing as we go. But the application, and again, you don't know what you don't know. I didn't know until I started being asked in in companies like insurance companies, banks, everybody gathers information. So Mm. if you think about you as a business, your most important people are your own staff. And then after that, it's knowing what the customer wants and finding out information from them so you can deliver what they actually need. Mm. If you don't do that effectively, 
yeah, your business isn't going to succeed because you don't understand your own team as well as not understanding what your customer wants and everybody is different. Every single individual is different. So it's quite, I suppose, uh, an English expression on Kenny from where I'm originally from in Newcastle in the north of England is that the, the parallels from, you know, something that was a technique devised for, you know, the police to interview people can be applied to lots of other disciplines or lots of different businesses and different contexts because we all communicate. It's just how well do we do that? How well do we ask questions? How well do we take notes? How well do we gather information? Yeah. And if you can de- you know, develop techniques or develop the framework of how you do that, mm. if you get better quality, quantity of information, it's going to lead you to make better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't get good information or you're interrupting people or you're asking, you know, if we were on a training course, I'd be saying, you're asking me multiple questions all the time. So two questions instead of just one. Yes. And then if you're thinking about, well, understanding the psychology of how memory works, once we start giving people that insight into terms of training, it just has, you know, you'll have somebody like last week, the FBI agent going, that, that works in my investigations, but it also works within my family life of how I interview my kids now. It'll also- <laughs> Or interrogate them. <laughs> well, not interrogate them, just how I might phrase a question. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And understand the psychology behind what is an open question. Well, that's, that's, I'm fascinated having teenagers well, and them going out at, in well, the evening. You want to know what anyone, they were up to. Anyone who has kids who's, gonna, who's <laughs> listening to this wants to know. Okay. Well, uh, I'll ask you, you, you ask me what you think is an open question. It's uh, a question which you can't say yes or no. It's a question which forces you to elaborate when you're answering. I was trying to think of the actual question. So I, I was thinking Jonathan, more along the lines of... if you were to go out last night, what would you rather do than not to do? <laughs> well, that would be what we class as a false choice question. Yeah. <laughs> Because it would be yeah. a what? And this is how, I suppose, anal we get when we're training people. Okay. So, so how then, should I have asked this Well, if question? you think about, and again, social dynamic, Listen this is different. Question. Most people think what we'd say is 5WH are open questions. Yeah. But if you actually analyze them, a what question? Okay. That's only going to potentially give you a limited response about potentially an action. Yeah. If you ask a who question, that's going to give you a name. Yes. If you ask a where question, that's going to give you a location. Yes. Yeah, and if you ask a why, you're looking at a rationale, or a, you know, it's what some what someone's going through their mind. But if you ask too many why questions, it's like your kid who is, you know, our daughter's two. I'm expecting in a few years' time she'll be asking why, why, why all the time. I'll just say, ask your mum, <laughs> and deflect that. And then if you look at how, that's action. But if you think about that five wh analogy and which as well. Is that's our social communication. That's how we actually ask questions. But they're not actually open questions. Mm. They're looking for a specific answer. Mm. We're conditioned to answer it. Again, that's not saying that people can't elaborate from that. If you're asking it like a did, can, was, is, are, that's a prefix, you're going to get a yes or a no. And this is, again, sounds really basic, but if you are having a conversation of what I've learned from my world where you do want a yes or no within a business conversation... If you're looking at the right question in the right place at the right time, I know that 5WH is going to give me a specific answer, whereas those closed questions are going to give me yes or no. Mm. Where I might be asking if it's towards the end of a conversation like yesterday without naming the client about are we going to proceed with some training? 
I want a yes, there's no bones about it. I want a yes or a no, so I know where this is going. But the most elaborate questions that are not often asked, you asked one before, would be, tell me, explain, describe, or even show me. But not many people actually ask them because they're not in our social communication normally. You can imagine going home at the end of the day and me asking my wife, tell me all about your day. She'll probably swear at me. Don't say that. Just ask you to describe <laughs> one little moment in your day when she felt like pulling her hair out. <laughs> it's if you want that elaborate response. Or you don't. So you're asking the right question at the right time to get what you're looking for. So if you're actually asking, and again, it's all in a delivery. If I was wanting a complete elaborate approach to somebody, their business, I'd ask a more open-ended question, the same as a witness to a victim or a suspect in my old world. If I'm looking for an elaborate response, what's called in the trade a recall of information, I'm going to ask a more open-ended question. So not many people, like I say, but, ask, but I tell me, explain, describe. I believe that stolen something. Yeah. And it would be Mace Hart or anything. How would we interrogate the uh, interview him? Stop <laughs> saying the words interrogate. We don't do interrogation. I'm sorry, yeah. but I really want to. I'm Russian. I'm KGB background. What do you want me to do? So let's interview Terence. Or can you give me an example? If you suspect he's stolen something. Well, not if it's stolen. If, if I didn't know Terence before today, yeah. and again, if I wanted to know about his company, because I know that he does coaching, I just ask an open-ended question. You know, tell me everything about your company. Yeah. That's true. And, if, and, if I, and, and again, this is what people don't realize of what we, with, within cognitive interviewing, it's called context reinstatement. And this is how we can transfer something that is designed around interviewing a witness or a victim that may have witnessed something a year, 10 years ago. And we're saying, look, take your time, no rush, think back. Think back to that time and place and as much detail. Don't leave anything out. Tell me everything. And then I'm handing over the ownership to that person. But with those instructions in front of that open-ended question, what science will tell us, because they research this, is I'm going to get more recall of information from that type of question rather than saying, what happened? If you transfer that into a business sense, so this might be just uh, having a conversation with your client or wanting to know about what they do, If I'm wanting more of a recall of information, I'm going to ask a more open-ended question and I'm going to prefix it with some instructions. So when you piece it together and it's nicely delivered, I'm really interested in your company. In much detail, tell me everything about it. Mm. I'm going to know that scientifically from my background, generally, I'm going to get more information from that. I'm then going to, and it's called, well, we're talking about questioning typology. So in an interview sense, Again, if you start off wide and then narrow down, your five WH are going to give you specific answers. So I might say, well, who's your manager? I know that I'm only looking for a person's name. What What's their role? Well, I'm only looking at what their role is. You know, Are you responsible for whatever it might be? I I'm actually thinking before I'm asking questions because I know exactly what the response is I'm looking for. But uh, on the other hand, you can provoke with this open question some vague and looping type of scenario when person will be walking about and not get delivering you any value Well, this is like I say, it's the right question in the right place at the right time. If you want an elaborate response, you'd ask those more open-ended questions. If you want a specific answer, you're going to ask the five WH. If you want a yes or a no, you're looking at those closed questions. So if you look at 
the people listening to this, it's called a questioning tool belt or Yule psychologist, Canadian psychologist, a questioning funnel. A funnel's wide at the top and narrows down. So you're looking at those open-ended questions to begin with, narrowing down to 5WH, and then closed questions. Becky Milne, professor at Portsmouth University, coined sort of a tool belt analogy. So you're looking at your tool belt of questions, and again, it's trying what we do with our training, which would transfer into, into this world, is going, well, if you know that they're the only questions you need to ask, you don't need to write out a question again in your life. You can ask an open-ended question when you want an elaborate response, specific when you want a name or a location or an action, and if you want yes or no, you're asking a closed question. So, you know, you can start off a conversation with a closed question if you wanted to. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think... From what you're saying to me, this, this applies very much in a business sense. And one of the things that I often say like, is if you want to sell something to somebody, go and ask them what it is that they want, find them a solution mm-hmm. and ask them if they'd like you to help them with that, you know, and <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the easiest path to a sale, right? Well, it's pretty simple. It is. And if you think about, you know, what I found out that, you know, I was good at individually or the people that work on my team, which, you know, I use the analogy of I surround myself with people that are, you know, 10 times better than I am, you know, because I want them, it's like the Steve Jobs quote, I want them to tell me what I should be doing. I shouldn't be telling them what to do. Mm. So most of the team are still specialists within the field and I use the correct people to do the trainings or whether it's public or private. You know, I want them telling me what to do. Yeah. The basic stuff is the bread and butter of what you're saying in terms of just how you're asking a question or interacting with somebody. And that was, you know, the, the eye-opening thing for me from leaving an institution where you are institutionalized in that, thinking, well, all I'm ever good for is investigating crime, to actually the skills that I possess are great because these people in the private sector or business don't ever get this training. Yeah. And again, if you've got somebody who's cooperative that wants to speak to you, it's finding a solution for them. Yeah. And again, if what I found with our approach is certainly, you know, people buy not what you do, but why you do it. Mm-hmm. You know, people will, because of that personal relationship they have with you about that what's driving your business, that's what people buy into. It's a bit like, hopefully you should interview my wife because she's, Really, our experience, and I'm, I'm sidetracking here, but yeah. this is why we're married as well in terms of why I've had such support, great support over 10 years, but also as she started an online marketplace from her experience of being a mum because she came here for an offer of a job with MasterCard, mm-hmm. headhunted, and this is why we came to Melbourne. And we found out on the day we were traveling, she was pregnant. And she only lasted in that job a couple of months and then... You know, with previous issues of trying to get pregnant miscarriages, Isla came six weeks prematurely and she was in hospital at Mercy Hospital for two months before Isla came. So the first sort of seven months of coming to Australia and living in Melbourne was quite horrific in terms of experience. And certainly my heart goes out to anybody that's gone through that or had similar experiences. But that's what led her to look at what she's doing now. Because as a parent, or as parents, we didn't have any family around us, any friends at that time. And what she was seeing from the need for services, you know, you, and I would say Dr. Google, everything would go into Dr. Google. And, you know, we're trying to find services. So whether it was to help us, you know, get Isla to sleep or problems with breastfeeding, or then when you look at, well, when we need a cake, she's come up with a, a marketplace that provides all those services in one location. But 
the reason why she's doing is that you know she was quite touched with some of the businesses she's seen here that are non-profit making but you know giving back to kids or charity so she set up a company and again it's a shame in a way that we're leaving to the Mortar states she's going to continue but she's you know all the people that are coming on board for her marketplace are all companies across the peninsula yeah. that buy into the reason well actually yeah you can promote our services and people can book through your marketplace but we know a percentage of that business goes back to charity and kids particularly so whether it's in australia or overseas when you look at the causation of you know putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and seeing a kid dies literally every other minute mm. because they just don't have clean water and if you look at yourself that's sort of the reason why she's getting so many you know traction with what she's doing similar to my business in terms of don't get me wrong a lot of people want to do the right things they're just not trained to do them yeah so it's interesting because she set up that business and a lot of our conversations over a cup of tea or even a glass of wine are talking about business which is i suppose people will think pretty boring at times you talk about <laughs> other things as well don't get me wrong it's usually about pooey nappies yeah. and, and isla and you know but you do things for what you want it's to only do for a period of time you have this conversation so cherish this because kids do tend to grow up yeah and um, that's what i just tell you enjoy But, it as a mom of four question for you i have if you were to set up it all over again now and knowing that australians can be very difficult to deal with you have come with oh, this i'm a pom so yes. i'm a winch pom you, you have to binge a bit yeah. <laughs> yeah so what your biggest winch would be about australia as a way business is done here i don't have any winches to be honest and again i don't you you make mistakes and everybody makes mistakes nobody's perfect i suppose it's going back to what we just talked about follow what your passion is i don't feel even though we're saying well, it's quite sad you talk about work but when you have your own business and it's your passion you, you know the quote is you never work a day in your life you're actually doing what you enjoy doing so we i enjoy what i do sarah's started to enjoy what she does rather than working for a big corporation because she's following what her passion is and again anybody that follows the passion uh, you can't not because you'll never work a day in your life if you're doing something you don't enjoy doing it's only you can change it you can speak to all the people in the world accountants coaches you've got to make that change yourself nobody else will do it and the worst analogy i can make and again it's going back to my teenage years is you know the worst that can happen is somebody can say no once you get over that hurdle it's not really a hurdle because I mean literally when I was going back to being a teenager the worst a girl could say to me ever if I wanted to ask them out on a date is no hmm. but there's Once, a huge fear of rejection for most people isn't it it's that fear of the unknown the rejection or it's not going to work hmm. and it's a bit even me playing golf the other day and going oh crap I know if I hit this right it's going to go in the water so I'm already thinking that way yeah instead of thinking well I'm just going to smash this right down the middle it's not going to be a problem So I wish I had the same mindset I have within my business to my golf game. Because <laughs> the negative thoughts cross in. I don't really have negative thoughts or regrets about anything that I've done because, you know, if you have regrets, you linger on them. Yeah, don't get me wrong, there's things that, you know, you make mistakes for a reason. And when you see all of those sporting quotes, whether it's Michael Jordan or whoever, it's from your failures that you learn. It's not, you know, no, nothing is perfect. There is a famous one now going on. Uh, it's about you never learn from place of comfort. Mm. If you would not be hungry, your talent wouldn't be hungry, you wouldn't be in the position you are now. 
because that's what our Russian poet said, the, the, the talent needs to be hungry. Yeah, and you surround yourself with, you know, again, using sporting analogy, why are all, even individuals, successful in what they do? They surround themselves with a good team. So whether that's first and foremost is your family who support you. Mm-hmm. If your family doesn't support you or your partner doesn't support you, it's difficult. And then if you've got people that work with you, share the same vision, that's going to be just fuel as well to achieve what you have in your mind. But you've just got to do it. If you don't do it, I mean, I know I was forced in the position I was, but, you know, I'm glad I was because I wouldn't be here now or wouldn't be going towards America. And, you know, the Australian company is still going to operate and we've got an Australian team here. So that will continue delivering training to our clients here. While, you know, if you'd asked me this, 10, 11 years ago when I was in Manchester that this is what I'd be doing or even having this interview now with you, I would laugh because that wouldn't even be on my radar. Instead, uh, you're laughing during the interview. That's fine. <laughs> oh, that's um, okay. Well, hopefully some people who do actually listen to this are going to get something from it. Got to be entertained as well as uh, educated. Th- th- yeah. This is a very fallen attitude. Hopefully people will listen to it. They will listen to us. They have to listen to us because you are giving them invaluable tips simple thing like I learned from you today the questions and hey I am being in my past I was interviewing people intuitively I didn't have this theory behind however I have been trained in NLP which you think you did good similar to to cognitive interviewing people that have been trained who have been on any of our courses goes very similar and again if you think about anybody a bit like today in a way His, his a bit of positive reinforcement, whether you see interviewers on the TV, they're not the stars of the show. The good interviewers never noticed. Or if you think about, you know, the good interviewers, even interviewing celebrities, somebody like Michael Parkinson, was he ever noticed in his show? Hmm. You know, if you're, ma- if you're managing somebody like Billy Connolly or people like that who are so extroverted, comedians... You're just asking them one simple short question and giving them the stage for five or ten minutes. The only, you know, you've got to manage your time. But he was never noticed. That's why people liked him. You know, the the stars of the show wasn't him. They were the people that were coming on. And if you see that with interviewers on the news, the good interviewers aren't noticed a lot because they just ask the most simple short questions and shut up. Let people talk. That's about ego, not to put your ego ahead of the well, agenda. <laughs> well, you, you'll see, and everybody listening to this will see that the better ones to the ones aren't because the people get frustrated when they see them on telly because they think they're the star of the show, not the person they're interviewing. That's a great point. Oh, and, like. and if I just flip it across and develop it a bit in a business sense, this is about people do go to business, they do need to have clients, and if client is not star of your show, you do not listen to the client and you're too busy talking to add the client, then you probably well, are not a good we, advisor. We, well, the interesting thing is that, you know, not I'm overly religious. This is why we've got two ears and one mouth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk now far more than I ever did in my previous life because the best interviews are the ones who listened. And again, if you think about business, I don't talk anything like this when I'm with a client. I just listen, you know. It might be a very simple question. I just listen to them. What I'm trying to do then is evaluate what they're telling to me to go back to your point, Terrence, is offer them a solution. Yeah. Because they're telling me exactly what they want. Mm -hmm. If I'm interrupting them, even the studies will show, I mean, it happens. People, you know, within seven seconds will hear something they desperately want to ask a question on and interrupt somebody. Yeah, a lot of the times we should just shut up and just listen to people. Yeah. 
you know, and the client is going to give you exactly what you're probably looking for. Yeah. And again, it's making them feel special. And then at the start of the show, that's, you know, the analogy of transferring what I did to now what we do now that, you know, successfully, what my challenge is, is doing less of probably the training, which I enjoy and doing more of the probably selling and running a business, which I don't enjoy so much. And I have less patience. But the nice thing is that I go in without any agenda. I tell people what I see and I can walk away at the end of the day. You know, probably a few years ago, that wasn't the case. It was kind of like, yeah, we can do that. I don't, I don't really want to do that, but we can train you. It's good. You know? Well, that's progression of business, really, isn't it? That's, that's, mm. You start where you need to and end up where you want to be, hopefully. Well, yeah, they, they also say you work on your brand initially and then your brand works on you. So how much of your brand now working for you? Well, it is. And I think that's, that's important in terms of, you know, I used to work with some guys who thought, you know, the crown jewels was all within the material, the training. And I was trying to say from a business perspective and just learning and, and speaking to the people who I spoke to, whether it be consultants or associates, well, the biggest thing is the brand because if people don't know who you are, well, it's pointless, you know, and you assimilate with, you know, if you're talking about McDonald's, Coca-Cola, the big brands, you immediately without even thinking about it, that's what you associate what the service is or what they provide as a product. So that's what we've spent a lot of time, money and effort on is, you know, forensic interview solutions or FIS with the trademarks, the branding around it. And it's quite interesting that we're kind of getting that traction now in terms of associating what we offer piece interviewing with the brand and they go hand in glove but it's still nice to be brought back to my roots, you know, when New Zealand, where it's not the company, it's just go and speak to Jonathan mm. because everybody knows each other because it's so small. But what a, you know, it was a great platform foundation to start off with because people associated the training to me as an individual. And now after 10 years, it's the company or certainly in the States or other countries around the world, they will find us because we're so niche in what we do. Which is, you know, frustrating to my wife because you don't work hard, Jonathan. You just get all these direct inquiries <laughs> that turn into business. And I keep saying, look, the challenge for me is trying to be from, well, moving from being reactive to being proactive to say, look, you know, you can imagine if I could free up more of my time mm. to be a bit more proactive what we could develop into rather than being reactive. So you're basically having a whinge about that your brand works so well that you don't need to be proactive anymore. You don't have opportunity. Oh. You're so reactive for all those queries. <laughs> but it comes back to what you said before, which is, yes, exactly. you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Well, you can't, I mean, people say word of mouth, but because it is so niche what we provide, so if you know within even the circles now within America of just training the other week, FBI agents, or police departments, they have looked for, you know, they've spoken or they'll look for a provider. There's nobody else in the market. So that's the advantage we have of such a niche. You know, that's what I think with a brand is that I could have diluted it and branched off into lots of other things in terms of services. But what I stuck to is exactly what we say on the tin. We, we provide investigative <laughs> interview training and that's what we do, you know. Keep it simple. I yeah, mean, yeah. essentially, yeah. that was the learning curve from what we talked about 20 minutes ago when I called it, you know, interview skills. That was too generic. Yeah. I've just stuck to aggressively exactly what we provide. And people looking for it will find us anywhere in the world on, you know, page one of Google near enough. 
because you know it's not that we're making cakes or biscuits there's a million people doing that hmm. that's probably the fortunate position we found ourselves in is that we provide a service that's very niche and again it's then when you realize that it's how do you distinguish it from your competitors or people that provide the same service so what's really interesting in from america is that we're coming into the market saying we're produce or we're providing ethical transparent scientific training that's practically based and our competitors are training interrogation confession based approaches reading people's body language and it's complete nonsense it's great tv if you watch the mentalist and lie to me but they've based the whole methodology of interviewing people on reading body language Mm. which science will tell us is not defined and you know you've got a 50% sort of success rate of detecting somebody lying from body language there's no pinocchio nose effect <laughs> that's why when we come into the market over that's a there, there isn't it <laughs> it's saying look we you know it's reinforced with what's good about the product that we provide or piece is that it sells itself i don't need to sell it that much as a as a business owner or you know what's going to be ironic is that you know, you, the catchphrase is, and people, even the Americans, are saying you're bringing peace to America. And I was like, well, I hope so. <laughs> you know, at this current stage, um, but essentially, it sells itself. You know, because you've got 30 years of academic research behind it. You've got every law enforcement, you know, agency in the Commonwealth utilizing it. It's a national standard here in Australia, New Zealand, UK. Canadians have just adopted it. It's not a hard sell. So I've landed on my feet in a way because. It's more difficult if I had to sell a widget and everybody else or the company sell a widget. You then have to distinguish, you know, what's different between your service to, you know, another company. And that's why I'd go back to it's you as an individual. You're also selling yourself and why you do what you do rather than what you do. Jonathan, people are fascinated with body language and you just completely just shut this idea down. I um, can't stop laughing about one of the Australian shows. I won't name it. But they were basically interviewing Chappelle Kobe. Obviously, it was some technology she, she was then detained. And um, the body language specialist were interpreting her answers and yep. their conclusion was she's completely innocent. Yeah. She came out, she never had anything, she never touched drugs in her life. That's how body uh, language specialist interpreted it. You're telling me that it's 50% chances of getting it right or wrong. It's obviously whether pregnant with a boy or girl, which is just really... Yeah. So tell me, it, are people still in our days using body language interpretations? They are, because it's something that's sexy, entertaining people think they could read people don't get me wrong don't i'm not saying dismiss your spider senses when they're tingling but certainly we're training people from verbal responses because for example if i cross my arms here now what does that mean arrogant cold um <laughs> hiding your tummy put on a bit of weight anything <laughs> but it could it could be anything i could just actually like folding my arms because that's comfortable correct if i look to the left or the right what does it mean You're interested in what is there on the left. And again, and you know, the world's a smaller place. If I don't actually look at you, that could be out of respect. Or you just don't you know. You might be intimidated by me. So if I go back to what we probably talked about 30-40 minutes, ABC. Now, I'm assuming from what I'm seeing, what you know, I'm interpreting that. If I actually ask them a question, how can I validate it? Mm. 
I give, if I ask a question, if you're going back to my world, any world, you know, people who are investigators, police officers, they're trained pretty much to get a verbal response. Because if you give me a verbal response, what can I do with a verbal response? I can check it. So if you give me an answer, I can physically go and check what there's been said. And in a business sense, it's exactly the same. If you provide me with information, I can go away and check it. Mm-hmm. If I'm just looking at somebody's body language, and if I don't know them, and again, if you don't have any, what we'd say in the sort of training, a baseline of somebody's normal behavior, you can't you know, make a comparison to how they're behaving with you now. Yeah. Because they might, if you think about anybody in any interview context, most people, it's job, job interviews, they're nervous. Yeah. So if you're being interviewed, you're going to be nervous. So you might display nervousness. So if you're sweating, crossing your arms, does it mean you're lying? There's no Pinocchio nose effect. They're indicators, uh, but it's not definitive. But that's what's amazing about why we're going to America is that for 50 years, the basis of their whole training both within sort of the law enforcement community as well as private organizations is based on what's called the read technique, which is a, well, they call it behavioral interview, reading somebody's body language, who you suspect to be guilty. If they confirm the signs of deception, you then interview them on a nine-step process to get a confession. So what tells you everything about the gold standard of that American technique is that the first ever, it was devised by Inbound and a guy called John Reed, who was a polygraph reader. So it's funny when you see Robert De Niro and Meet the Fuckers and, you know, they've got the polygraph, but the first ever interview with this technique turned out to be a false confession. That should tell you everything for half a century is that their whole approach to interviewing is flawed. And again, we have shows when people asking to admit to the, whether they had an affair or not, and they have a, a lie detector on them. It's, uh, it's an indicator. But if you look at, again, scientific research on it, it's never validated. It's never used in a court of law anywhere in the world. And if you go to body language, that is never used in any court anywhere in the world of mm. an expert or an expert witness going in going, right, I'm going to give you uh, my expert testimony on body language because it would just get dismissed out of hand. Mm. But however, could it still have a place in your way of interviewing people? Would you still pick it as a cue to ask different type of questions or adjust? Well, you'd ask a question. So if you saw something visually, to validate it, you ask a question. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. this becomes more like a well, subtle cue rather than a conclusive factor. You can imagine, if you can think about your worlds for a minute, I think you've just employed somebody from England because you made a joke about it the other day of, yeah. you know, well, they're all going to teach you to English or to speak English. And I was like, well, probably some of the worst cases are people speaking English it, in it, the it UK. It just didn't happen in this instance. He's but learning it, swear words. It's just terrible. But if you think about, you know, what are you going to do when you're interviewing? You see sort of visually you think he's nervous. He's sweating, he's a bit sort of anxious. What do you say to somebody? Relax. Well, potentially you pick <laughs> up on that and say, get you a drink or what you did this morning. Can I get you a coffee? Hmm. You're going to engage somebody or start asking, well, are you actually nervous? There's no need to be nervous. Yeah. This is just going to be an informal chat. You're starting to talk to somebody or ask a question to actually determine, well, are you nervous? Hmm. Well, it's a close question, yes or no. Yeah. If you get yes, well, okay, that's, you're reading visually that you verbally then confirm. Yes, makes a lot of sense. It's common sense, but, you know. Well, common sense is not that common. <laughs> we do all know. Well, as we all know, some of the smartest people you know are also 
when common sense comes to mind, some of the dumbest people as well. <laughs> you know, this is what I suppose is frustrating when you see, you know, because I'm still, you know, married to my old career in a way where they're saying people with degrees or direct entry can go into a, a you know, law enforcement or police career, which, you know, some of the things you can't train doesn't mean you need a degree to have common sense or speak to people. Mm. Well, Nadia, we probably should release Jonathan at some point. It's my detention over. <laughs> I'm just trying to stay it's with the theme. It's rather a sad moment. I can, well, I got hit. There is 51 questions left, but it's fine. We just probably will stop. And yeah. how can we find you if we need you? Yes, your well, exact location, please. Exact location? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Which office? Because we've got offices in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, America, so Hong what, Kong. What you're being told is it's the wrong question. That's yeah. exactly yeah. the point. My other question is, if I, I got very interested in the way of we should be asking questions and what type of questions and all, all this uh, jazz, have you ever put together a comprehensive, trivialized, obviously, version of good interview? Yeah, I mean, we have video footage. I mean, I people... wouldn't want specific terms, and uh, which would be really well, not. If any of the people listening to this do, I mean, they'll find us if they search for forensic interview solutions. It's fis forward slash international dot com. People, and again, we don't spam people to death with with flyers, a bit like your company. I won't oh, say that allegedly. A... <laughs> um, is that they can get some of the articles that we've talked about today, whether it's about questioning how the memory works. They can access free information on the website, download. So they're either, like I said, research articles, articles about questioning, about memory, detecting deception some of the templates or the tools which are part of peace training so things like interview plans and note-taking methods are all in there so it's interesting that you know some of the basic skills like we've talked about asking questions or even taking notes people during a meeting you know telephone conversation within business aren't very good at taking notes effectively so when they do look at their notes you know a day or so later it looks like hieroglyphics you know those kind of things are available on the website free of charge and again, if people are interested in it, by all means, log on. They'll be able to get F those downloads. FIS-International. We'll put a link in the notes for, yeah. the, for the podcast. That's been really good. I've taken plenty of notes myself. Do you want me to have a go at summarizing this? <laughs> we, yeah. This is, I mean, this is the interesting thing of what people don't do, I suppose, to... Well, could you summarize how long have we been going? Over an hour? Yeah. Your short-term memory is not going to be able to summarize everything we've covered no correct and again it's a bit like bite-sized chunks a bit like those biscuits there yeah it's a, smaller sections you know <laughs> just summarizing information that you've heard yeah <laughs> is going to assist you yeah to be able to do it but go yeah. ahead I, I go. Got the first thing i got was specialism was also a curse that, mm. was, that was an interesting comment that you made yeah and that we're all investigators auditors and information gatherers that, that was one thing i picked up on a piece framework for interviewing very interesting i didn't note down all of the particulars but i'm sure that we'll find that somewhere on your website or whatever yeah. cognitive interviewing and false confession you know, kind of being able to get the right maybe outcomes from interviewing and obtaining confessions versus extracting the truth. Yeah. You know, a big difference in the US. Big difference from interrogations because <laughs> people still say they've been interrogated by their wives or partners. I love what we spoke about, about the investigative mindset. Yep. That was pretty cool. Okay. Assume, not assume. This is one of well, the things. ABC, it's... assume nothing, believe nothing, check everything. But it's funny, the principles behind that, and this is what you'll get when you summarize. Yes. People will naturally add in 
more detail. Yes. Or clarify you if you've... If you haven't quite done it. Five WH questions. Very helpful for me, actually. I kind of never thought about it that way, so that was really helpful for me. Let me go right question, right place, right time. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, look, we've got to finish on the Pinocchio nose effect. <laughs> that's, that's classic. Yeah. Absolutely classic. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was beautiful. So on that note, thanks a lot for no, taking you. the time to kind of discuss this thing. It was it kind of illuminated a lot of things for me that I hadn't really thought about in the ways that you'd kind of spoken about them. So thanks for coming down and sharing with us and we'd love to speak with you again at some stage and, and you wish you well. And when you're in the US, well. US and so big that don't want to speak to us, but we will insist. Yeah. Oh, well, no, that's not a problem. Thanks a lot for having me. Hopefully somebody, you know, listening to this gets some value out of it. Yeah. Oh, they will. They will. <laughs> Thank you very Thanks, much. All good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.